Let me tell you an amazing story. It's an amazing story about a person that you will want to be like. John Harper was born in a Christian home in Glasgow, Scotland in 1872. When he was 14, he became a Christian. And from that point on, he began to zealously and passionately share the gospel there in Scotland. At 17, he began to preach. And then in September 1896, he began a church in London. He was such a fervent evangelist that Moody Bible Church in Chicago invited John Harper to come to the States to do a series of revival meetings. And then a few years later, because those were so uh, well received, they brought John Harper back to do another series of meetings in Chicago. So John Harper bought a second class ticket at Southampton, England for his voyage to America. His wife had died and his only child, Nana, who was six years old, joined him on this transatlantic journey. The only reason we know what happened after that is because of two sources. One was Nana, who lived to the age of 80 and died in 1986. She remembers her father waking her up in the middle of the night. It was midnight and the ship had just struck an iceberg. Harper told Nana another ship was close and was about to rescue those on board. And so he put her into a lifeboat and he told her he would get on the ship that was about to arrive. The rest of the story you probably know. Because the ship they were on was the Titanic. The only way we know what happened to John Harper was because of this. In a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, months later, a young Scotsman stood up in the prayer meeting in tears and told of an extraordinary story of how he was converted to Christ. He explained he'd been on the Titanic the night it had struck an iceberg. He clung to a floating piece of debris and in the freezing waters, he said, quote, suddenly a wave brought a man near me who was holding a piece of wood himself, John Harper. Harper called out, man, are you saved? And the man replied, I am not. And he shouted back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the waves bore Harper away for a little while. And then it washed him back again. And Harper said, are you saved now? No, I answered. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank to his death. And there, the man said at that prayer meeting, all alone in the night with two miles of cold water underneath me, I trusted in Jesus Christ as my savior. I'm John Harper's last convert. We may not be the evangelist John Harper was, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray to become one. This morning, 
in our passage in Luke chapter 10, what we discover is that every cross-caring disciple of Christ is also a gospel-sharing witness for Christ. If Luke chapter 9 told us what it means to be his disciple, his follower, it means to take up our cross and follow him daily. What Luke 10 begins to teach us is part of our discipleship in carrying the cross of Christ is bearing his message of the gospel to the world. I want you to see this for yourself. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. You can find this on page, I believe it's 868 in the Pew Bible. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, you can open up to 868 or around there. Uh, The big number is 10. So if you're not used to reading a Bible, the chapter number is the big number. The verse numbers are the sentence numbers. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10. Verses 1 to 16, where Jesus sends out 72 messengers on a kind of short-term mission trip. What can we learn from this passage? Let's listen now to God's word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it'll return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you. Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him 
who sent me. Brothers and sisters, there is a lot to draw attention to in this passage. I simply want to draw your attention to three things. Three things. If we would join Christ in his mission to the whole world, we must do three things as his disciples. Number one, we must pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Look again at verses one and two. If we would follow Christ in his mission to the world, the first thing we must do is pray earnestly. You'll notice there in verses one and two that Jesus organizes and commissions a short term mission trip. Do you see that? He appoints 72 and notice that word others. You see that? So this is Luke chapter nine began with Jesus sending out the 12, right? The apostles. This is a separate group from the apostles. These are others, other disciples, other followers who were there in the crowds that had been following Jesus. He sends out the 72 and on a kind of short-term evangelistic mission trip. Um, many people have debated what, what is the significance of 72. We know from, from later on in the book of Luke that the reason Jesus chose 12 apostles is because it's representative, according to Luke 22, it's representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. It'll be 12 thrones. That's what Jesus says in Luke 22. The 72, most people agree, it refers to Genesis chapter 10, where we read there are 72 nations, right? So Genesis 10 summarizes the whole world under this rubric of 72. And I think that's kind of what Luke is getting at here in this passage. 72 nations representing the whole world. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like a preview in this mission trip of the Great commission that Jesus is going to send out his disciples into the whole world to disciple all the nations after he rises from the dead. Where did they go? We don't know specifically, but based on the descriptions there in this passage, it appears they went to the eastern side of the Jordan River to places and towns that were known to be idolatrous cities. Uh, that's why Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep among what? Wolves. So he's sending them out to some very difficult places. Notice there, he sends them out two by two. Do you see that? Now we think two by two and we just assume that's simply because of safety and you know, mutual encouragement and training. All of that is true. It's good to do that together. But it also seems that based on what Jesus is going to say in this passage about judgment for rejecting the gospel, Jesus is sending out them two by two because that's what God's word says in his law. In order to establish a claim, you have to have two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19. In order to convict someone of a crime, according to Deuteronomy 17.6, you have to have two or three witnesses. Jesus is sending out these disciples two by two because they're his royal ambassadors. And if you reject his royal gospel, those two will bear witness and testify against you on the last day. Jesus sends them out in verse two. He says, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. 
Now notice this logic. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. You see that? So what's the main idea in those two verses? Namely, in that verse, pray earnestly. Do you see that? That's the main idea. Everything else in that verse modifies, unpacks, and explains that main imperative. Pray earnestly. This is the word that Luke often renders in in your Bible if you read BSV. In other places, this is the word that that comes across in our English language as beg. So he's, he's telling the disciples, before you set foot on this mission trip, the first thing you should do is beg. Pray zealously. Pray fervently. Beg. Keep on asking. That's the idea in verse two. Remember earlier when that man that was full of leprosy fell at the feet of Jesus and he begged him continually, Lord, make me clean. That's the same verb that Luke's telling us here. But I love this. Before you go out to the harvest fields, the first preparation you make is praying to the Lord of the harvest. Now, I want you to think about this. When you go on a trip, you often have to what? Make preparations, right? And it's amazing here, before they even even set foot, they're called to pray. There's so many people in the harvest field, there's not enough workers. And you would expect Jesus to say something like this. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, therefore go, right? That's what you expect him to say. But that's not what he says. The first thing he says is the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. There are not enough workers to to, to handle the harvest. Therefore, pray. Pray. Missions always begins with prayer. It begins with prayer and it ends with praise. Send forth laborers into the harvest field because it's his harvest. I love that phrase. It's his harvest field. This is his harvest. This is the Lord's harvest. And so Christ begins by calling his disciples to pray for the forward progress of the gospel. Not every single one of you will ever go on a a short-term mission trip. Now you can do a short-term mission trip locally or internationally. Not many of you, not all of you will ever do that. But every single one of us in this room can pray daily to the Lord of the harvest to send forth labors into his harvest field. If you're a brand new Christian, you actually pray this every single time you pray the Lord's prayer. You realize this? Lord, send forth labors into your harvest field for the sake of the gospel is the same thing as praying, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. So when we think about the the, the weight of the lost world around us, when we think about the lack of gospel access that many millions of people have, the millions of people who've never even heard the name of Jesus, not only in other parts of the world, but even in this area, it can be overwhelming, right? Right? But Jesus, he talks about the harvest field 
because he wants us not to be driven to despair or to be driven to where we're, uh, we're overwhelmed. He wants the enormity of the mission to drive us to our knees. That's the, that's the first thing Jesus tells us here. Christ's mission begins with prayer and it will end in praise. I love in Psalm 67, this language of the harvest. I think this is what Jesus is alluding to. Psalm 67 says this. This is verse five. The psalmist says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And the very next verse is the earth will yield its harvest. And then the psalmist says, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The Lord of the harvest has brought the nations to Northern Virginia. Um, We need to pray for folks like Kyle who are thinking about moving to other parts of the world to plan his life in another region, like a place like Turkey. There are more Christians worshiping down the road at McLean Bible Church than in the entire nation of Turkey this morning. So we want to pray for the Lord to send forth labors to go to other parts of the world. But for ourselves in this area, we should ask God to raise up labors to send forth to the harvest fields here in Northern Virginia, where the Lord has brought people from every tribe and nation and tongue to our doorsteps. We should pray that the Lord would use us to not only go across the seas, but to cross the street to talk to neighbors, to reach out to refugee communities with the four, to, to be able to talk to them about the good news of Christ. So what do we want to do? What does Jesus say right at the beginning of this mission trip? The first thing before you pack your bag, get on your knees and pray. Number two, we're not just to pray earnestly. Number two, we're to go urgently. We're to go urgently. Look at verses three and four, verses three and four. Verse three. What's the first word in your Bible? Verse three. Someone just yell it out. Go. So y'all are y'all are drank your coffee this morning. You're tracking. Go. That's a present tense imperative. That's that, that that's the main point of verse three. The main point is Go. The, the, the verb there, go, it, it, you, your Bible may say to be on the move. That's another way to render it. Be on the move, go, get going. But the Lord in that verse is not just commanding, as it were, speed. He's, he's highlighting urgency. Now, I imagine we all move at differing speeds. Uh, as I'm getting older, you know, I can't do the things I used to do. I used to be able to, on family vacation, we always have the Roark games, which always involve me defeating my kids in athletic events. Well, a few years ago, <laughs> I pulled up with a hamstring injury on the beach because my sons were faster than I was. Now, as you get older, you start moving slower. But I would say every family probably has at least one person who moves at a slower pace. Amen. Um, We all have family members, perhaps, who love to get places early. They want to be 10 minutes early and they move at an urgent pace. But we do all have probably friends or family members who move at what we would call a leisurely pace, Uh, maybe like an elderly sloth or something. But listen, 
Jesus is not talking about speed. He's talking about urgency. How do I know this? Because of verse four, look what he says. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So when you go on a trip, you pack for the trip. You pack clothes, you pack toiletries, you make preparations, you buy a ticket, you get rides to coordinate to the airport, whatever. But Jesus says, skip those preparations. The mission is so urgent, you don't need to carry a second pair of sandals. The ones you got on are fine. He says, don't pack a backpack or a money sack. Just just go. It's time to go. It's urgent. He says, don't greet anyone on the way. Now, Jesus is not commanding his disciples to be rude. (laughs) Don't take this as your life verse. I'll never talk to anyone, right? (laughs) Jesus is saying, get going. It, It was customary in Jewish culture. If you met someone on the road, you would stop and spend a lot of time catching up. But Jesus says, no chatting on the road. You have an urgent mission. Get going. Now, as we think about this call to urgency... I wonder if it reminds you a little bit of the Exodus. Do you remember in the book of Exodus when the people of Israel, after the plagues, the signs and wonders that God did in that land, after the last one, Pharaoh finally relented and let the people of Israel go. Remember, they were celebrating Passover for the first time. Now, remember what happened? Listen to the instructions that God gave to Israel. They were told to eat the Passover meal urgently. Exodus 12, with your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand and eat it in haste because it's the Lord's Passover and you guys are going out. You're leaving. Later, the Egyptians were urgently trying to send them on their way. Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. This similar kind of urgency is supposed to mark the people of God. That that we have been, as it were, according to Luke, rescued by Jesus in a new and better exodus. Remember in chapter 9 when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what was he talking to Elijah and Moses about? His exodus that he was about to perform in Jerusalem. Jesus came on a rescue operation. He has come into the world as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when you start to thinking about our situation and the situation of the Israelites in Egypt, you start to appreciate the urgency. We were slaves just like they were. We were slaves to bondage and sin and to Satan and to death. But we took shelter under the blood of the spotless lamb who has been slain. And God's judgment fell upon Christ and not on us. And we've been rescued from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of all of our sins. And so we are those who've been covered in the blood of the lamb. And now the Lord Jesus dwells in our midst by his spirit. And we are following him to the promised land. That's the situation we find ourselves in. 
And Jesus calls us to a sense of urgency. He calls us to go with this message of the gospel as those who are bearing an urgent message. At this point in Luke chapter 11, chapter 10 rather, there's only about six months left in the public ministry of Christ. Do you realize that? The last half, more than half of the gospel of Luke is the final six months. The last third of the gospel of Luke is the last week of his life. So there's a, there's a sense in which the cross is right around the corner. And so Jesus heightens this sense of urgency by calling them to go. Now, you'll notice there in verse three, another reason to be urgent. Look at verse three. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out. Notice as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus is preparing us for a hostile reception. Now, children, may I just ask you a really quick question. If a lamb and a wolf got into a fight, who, who's probably going to win? Yeah, wolf. <laughs> good, that's good. That's what Jesus is getting at. That, that if we're going out as lambs among wolves, it's not because we're going to have power over the wolves. The wolves are stronger than we are. We're weak. We're lambs. We're not going to overcome the wolves of the world by our strength. In fact, we're actually going to probably many of us, some of us will have to die. We've seen that throughout church history. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But what is Jesus getting at here? One thing he wants us to see is that we are going to be received by the world in ways uh, where we are rejected. Um, Wolves and lambs don't get along. And that's what Jesus is highlighting. We go urgently to a world that doesn't really want to hear what we have to say. And Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for this. Do you remember what he said earlier in Luke chapter six? Blessed are you when people what? Hate you. When people exclude you. When they revile you. When they spurn your name as evil on my account. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter six. He says, rejoice in that day. Rejoice in that day because that's the same way the prophets were treated. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus wants us to see that he's sending us out into a world that will reject us many times. But that doesn't change the urgency of the mission. So how do we, what do we do then? We go out as lambs among wolves. We pray earnestly. What are we supposed to do? How do we get the forward progress of the gospel to happen? What do we do? That brings us to number three and finally, We don't just pray earnestly. We don't just go urgently. But then number three, we speak boldly. Verses five to 16. In verses five to 16, Jesus helps us understand that every cross-carrying disciple of Christ is also a gospel-sharing witness for Christ. We have to boldly proclaim the gospel of the kingdom so that others can hear and be saved. Now, 
How many of you have ever heard of, of St. Francis Assisi? He, he said a quote one time that's very, very famous. He said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. How many of you have heard that before? Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Don't be ashamed. It's okay if you've heard it. Um, now, here, here, now, if that quote, if all you mean by that quote, if all, if all that Francis meant was that Christians should live lives that, that are holy, that follow God's word, that's, that's a good quote. But if you think about the quote itself, we have to use words. God's word says that faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans chapter 10. So if, if we never open our mouths, if we never speak boldly, then how's the gospel going to go out? It's not going to go out simply by living a quiet life where we never open our mouths. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. You'll notice in verses 5 to 16, after he calls us to pray and to go, he gives examples of those who receive the gospel and then those who reject the gospel. Jesus wants his disciples to understand how to respond to either, either response. So first, we're to speak the gospel. Look there at verses five to nine. Boldly as messengers of peace. So he sends us out first and foremost as messengers of peace. Look there at verse five. The 72 are supposed to travel from town to town. They're to travel from village to village. And you'll notice there in verse six that some are going to receive the kingdom. They're going to receive this message of peace. And Jesus says those are people that he calls sons of peace, right? Verse six. And when they speak the message and it is received, they're welcomed into the home. Jesus says they should stay there. Use that home as a kind of uh, base of operations, just like the apostles did in the north. They're not supposed to go from house to house to house trying to see who has the best food, right? You stay in one spot and you go out from there to evangelize that village or that area. And then you'll notice there in verses six to eight, they're to eat and drink whatever is offered to them. If you've ever been to the Middle East or Central Asia, hospitality is a big deal. And when you go into someone's home and they offer you food or drink, it's extremely rude uh, to, to turn it down. The last time I was in Northern Iraq, I was going to tons of houses during the day and every single person I went into their home offered me hot tea with lots of sugar. And I never said no. And I don't think I slept that entire week, right? I was so wired. And I just, every home you go into, here's some hot tea and you drink it and you talk. But th that's, that's the same idea here. Don't, don't say no, right? But notice in verses, verse, verse nine, they're, they're not only to love their neighbors with their words, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? But they're also to love their neighbors indeed. Verse nine, Jesus says, heal the sick in it. So there's the deed. And then notice the, the, the word and say to them, the kingdom of God has drawn near, come near to you. So if the passage ended here, this would be great, right? 
Who doesn't want to go on a mission trip where you get food and drink and people receive you and the peace of God and the kingdom draws near? This is all wonderful. We can deliver the message of peace. But that's not the only thing that we're going to find, because, again, we're going out as sheep among wolves. So in verses 10 to 16, Jesus prepares his disciples for a second type situation. We're to speak boldly, not only as his messengers of peace, but also as his messengers of judgment. There's a certainty of judgment that's coming, and we don't ever want to avoid this or fail to mention it. Jesus says, look there at verse 10. There's a certainty of this coming judgment. Look again at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, they don't welcome you. Go into its streets and say, verse 11, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. He repeats this phrase from earlier. The kingdom of God has come near. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So what is Jesus getting at? In these verses, he's telling his disciples, yes, we go as messengers of peace, but when the gospel is rejected, when the gospel is not welcomed, when Christ is not welcomed, there is a message of judgment. Now, remember earlier in Luke 9, when the disciples, James and John, when they went to the Samaritan village and they did not welcome Jesus or the disciples, what did James and John immediately want to do? Lord, let us call down fire from heaven and wipe that village out, right? Jesus says, rebuke them. He said, that's not, you're not thinking right about this. Well, here's where Jesus tells them what to do. Notice this phrase. Now, kids, you might be wondering, what is the deal with the sandals in the dust, right? Go outside amidst the city or the, or, the, or the town, the village. And he says, look what he says. Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. What's going on with that? It was common for Jews in the first century when they would pass through Gentile lands. After they left a Gentile land, they would stop when they're entering the land of Israel. They would take their sandals off. And they would shake off the dust as a sign of judgment on the pagan Gentiles. They didn't want to take Gentile dust into Israel. And so it was a sign of separation and it was a sign of judgment for those who were idolaters. But this is what's striking, brothers and sisters. Do you see this? Jesus is instructing his followers He's the, he's the seed of Abraham. He's the son of David. And he's instructing his followers who are Jewish to shake off the dust of their feet against Israelites in the land of Egypt. Or, I'm sorry, in the land of Israel who have rejected Christ. And it's a reminder to these people. Judgment is certain And he leaves no misunderstanding. If you don't think that's what he's saying, look at verse 12. Don't look at me. He says, it's going to be worse on the last day for you 
than it was for Sodom. And you know Genesis 19. That's like the sin city in the Old Testament. And that city was judged because of its sexual sin, because of its idolatry. It will be worse on the day of judgment for those who reject Christ than it was for Sodom. Now, why do we, why, this, this, this doesn't sound like good news, right? You think, what is that? I'm supposed to share the good news. Well, listen, if you go to the beach with your kids and you don't warn your kids if they're really little, if you don't warn them not to go into the, into the surf alone without mommy or daddy, I'm not sure you love your kids. You, you warn your kids because you love your kids, right? Jesus doesn't say to James and John, call down the fire. He says to James and John and to all of his disciples here, warn them that judgment is coming. It is loving for us to share the certainty of judgment. That's why when we confess our faith, every time we confess our faith, we confess Jesus Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. And listen, friend, if you're if you're here, not a follower of Christ. The reason we know that the world is going to be judged is because God raised Jesus from the dead. When Paul, the apostle, was preaching on Mars Hill in Athens, some people heard him and they mocked him and laughed. Some people believed and some people wanted to hear more. But this is how the apostle concluded his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17. God commands all people everywhere to repent Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In your effort to prove that the resurrection happened, don't miss the fact of what the resurrection proves. Namely, that God's going to judge the whole world one day by Jesus Christ. This is certain. It's more certain, friend. That day is more certain than it's certain you're going to get out of bed tomorrow. And so we have to speak boldly. But it's not just the message of coming judgment. Notice in verses 13 and 14, Jesus highlights the importance of, of repentance and faith. Do you see that? He, he uses this word, woe. Do you see that? Verses 13 and 14. He says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And what Jesus does in this last section, he lists out all of these cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. You see that? These were all places that Jesus had ministered with his disciples. They had seen his signs and wonders. They had seen his miracles, his mighty deeds. They had heard the gospel, but for the most part, they had not believed. They had rejected the gospel. And so Jesus says, he says, if these wicked Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon, if they had witnessed what you had done, what I have done in your town, they would have repented. You see, that's what he's calling us to. The way 
to prepare for judgment day is by hearing, believing, and repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. Now, as followers of Christ, we, we, have, we have this passage that, that points ahead to the Great Commission. So we, we have a, a, a different context, a different culture, but we have the same king who's calling us to pray, to go, and to speak boldly the word of his gospel to the world. We are messengers of his peace. And if you want to see the summary of the whole passage, if you've been lost to this entire message, look at verse 16. Jesus puts verse 16 in the Bible for us to get a summary of what this passage means. Verse 16, this is, this is amazing. The one who hears you, if you're using a Southern Bible, it says y'all. So that's a plural you. He's talking to the whole 72. So this is what he's saying. The one who hears you all hears me. And the one who rejects you all rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Friend, if you want an encouragement to be an evangelist, there it is. This is incredible. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are sent out by the king to take his terms of peace to a rebellious world. And we're supposed to give this message. And if those who hear it, believe it, they're hearing Christ speaking through us. And they're reconciled to their king. But if we deliver the message and they reject us, Jesus says they're rejecting him and they're rejecting the one who sent him into the world. God, the father. It's amazing. For those who hear and believe. They're hearing the very king himself. Now, friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, let me ask you. Have you asked yourself where you will be a hundred years from now? Where will you be a hundred years from now? God's word says you will be somewhere and you will be conscious. You will be among the damned in eternal agony. Or you will be in a place where joy never ends. Your eternal destiny and mine is a heartbeat away. And this passage tells us that Christ is king, not you. God is our king because he made us for himself and for his glory. And the definition of sin is that we have turned our backs on the God who made us and the God who gives us life and breath and everything. And because of our sin, we stand under his judgment because he's good. He actually cares 
about injustice in the world. And there's no injustice that's ever happened in this world that will not either be paid for on the cross or in hell because he's good. But we're not good. So the only hope we have is to cast ourselves on his mercy and in his love, he sent his only son, his eternal son into the world who took on flesh and dwelt among us and was obedient where we have been disobedient all the way to the cross where Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God in our place for our sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news that we believe. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, please do not presume upon the riches and kindness and patience of God. Friend, you're within the sound of the gospel this morning and you may never be again. And this passage is calling everyone to trust in Christ, to turn from our sins and to receive the Savior who rose again for our justification in the empty hands of faith. Brothers and sisters, as a church, how do we respond? We respond by praying. We respond by serving. We respond by inviting. We respond by giving. We respond by sharing. There's, there's countless ways we can, in our stages of life, wherever the Lord has placed you, you can pray. And it doesn't mean simply to pray for the Lord to send folks to Turkey you can pray for God to raise up folks to go across this city to bring the good news of the gospel. And so what I would encourage you is today, even at lunch, ask yourself, who is one person that you know, one person that you know, that you can begin to pray for, love, serve, and speak to about the good news of Christ? One person. Be praying for that person. Talk about that. Even today. And I want you to be encouraged. Be encouraged if you're a Christian. Knowing that the results of our evangelism may not ever be seen in this life. John Harper didn't see it. Let me tell you one more story as we close. When we scatter the word of God faithfully. The seed may lie under the soil until we do and then sprout up. Luke Short was a farmer in New England. He was 100 years old. He was still out farming in his his backyard. He wasn't a follower of Christ. One day he sat in his fields reflecting on his long life. And he suddenly recalled a sermon that he had heard when he was a child in Dartmouth, England, before he had sailed to America. And at that moment, at the age of 100, the horror of dying under the curse of God impressed upon him as he meditated on the words that he had heard. 85 years earlier from a pastor named John Flavel. 
And God saved him. So our cheerful duty as disciples of Jesus to follow him in this mission to the world. We are to pray earnestly. We're to go urgently. We are to speak boldly. And as we do this, we know that the Lord of the harvest will determine when and what and where his harvest shall be. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth will yield its harvest. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you for this call to be witnesses and messengers of your grace and of your glory to a world that is in desperate need. And we pray, Lord, that you would even this week grant us opportunities and boldness and wisdom to know how and when and give us hearts to to remember your kindness towards us. That someone came and shared with us And we pray, Lord, we would serve you for your glory until that day we see you face to face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.